0: Welcome to this week's podcast at Bergen Park Church from Evergreen, Colorado. We hope you enjoy this message, and if you'd like to hear any more or learn more about the church, please visit bergenparkchurch.org. Thanks, Stephen and worship team. Good morning, guys. I just want to remind us that the reason we're here this morning is to glorify God, to worship Him, to enjoy Him. That is our chief end. That is our ultimate purpose to worship our God. Now, over the next uh, couple of months, we're going to be turning to the book of Ephesians. I'm going to be leading us through a a series in uh, Paul's epistle to the church in Ephesus. And really what what Paul wants the, the Ephesian church to understand is the importance of doxology, right, worship of God. That's the idea. Again, we exist to glorify our God. And so what the Apostle Paul does is he lays a theological foundation for the church. He wants them to know the God they worship. He wants them to know their Messiah, Jesus Christ. Now, every scripture is revealed for a reason. Every scripture is God-breathed. And sometimes the purpose of a book of the Bible is very clear from the from the the start. You open up that that text and you begin to read, and it becomes quite evident early on exactly why that scripture is there. Paul's letters to the Corinthian church, for example, uh, we see from the from the onset that that Paul was writing to correct some immorality in the church. There were problems in the Corinthian church and Paul was writing to, to fix those, those issues. If you go to the book of Galatians, again, the apostle Paul was writing to the Galatian church to repair some damage that had been done by false doctrine, false gospels that had infiltrated the church. The book of Colossians is similar. There were issues with Christology or the doctrine of Christ that Paul was trying to, 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 to repair in that church. He was helping the Colossian church understand the dual nature of Jesus Christ, divine and human. But when we get to the book of Ephesians, it's not really that clear from the start exactly what, what Paul's getting at. What is the purpose of this book? Now, there are some indications as we open this book, and we'll re- be reading today verses 1 through 14. You come to verses 3 through 14 in particular, right after the introduction, and what we find here is in Greek a very long sentence. These verses are one long sentence in the Greek, and it's essentially an outburst of praise to God. It's one monstrous sentence of exaltation, essentially, and it's punctuated throughout by an in-depth exposition of the core tenets of the Christian faith, belief, and practice. So when we read the opening of Ephesians, there's no doubt that God clearly wanted the Ephesian church to have a solid foundation in the faith, to know God rightly, to walk with God in obedience, and to worship God rightly. Now, this need for a solid foundation is not unique to the first century Ephesian church. In fact, Paul's letter is relevant for today. You see, the, the 21st century Western christian protestant church is plagued by something you might call theological minimalism okay and by theological minimalism i have in mind the view according to which the fundamental tenets of the christian faith may be held with more or less indifference as long as you love jesus as long as we love jesus we don't really need any anything else So people with biblical convictions are labeled as Pharisees or or legalists or or, or that sort of thing. You see, theological minimalism means ambivalence toward building a full-orbed Christian worldview that's rooted in biblical revelation, that informs every aspect of our life. The idea is that um, sometimes we, we, we know just enough about God to count ourselves among God's people, but not enough to experience the fullness of God's majesty, his attributes. That's theological minimalism. It leaves us with spiritual, emotional, and intellectual voids in our life that end up being filled by the world, the flesh, and the devil. And so these gaps in right belief, right practice, right relationship to God, right worship will inevitably be filled with wrong beliefs, wrong practices, wrong relationship to God, wrong worship. That's just the way it works. And so theological minimalism has made many modern evangelical churches about as missionally effective and about as doctrinally potent as tea made from a scrap of paper that once sat in a drawer next to another scrap of paper that once contained a few dry tea leaves from which tea had already been made three times. You see how weak and diluted our belief and practice can get. It weakens God's people. And so what the Apostle Paul is doing here, he's writing to the Ephesian church so that they would savor their Savior, so that they would know the God they worship. So when Paul wrote to the Ephesians, he was writing to a group of people who had come out of, of witchcraft, sorcery, a polytheistic idolatry, in fact, if you go back to uh, the book of Acts, chapter 19, you can read about the, the story of the conversion of the city of, of Ephesus. We're not going to go there today, but I would urge you this week, if you have some time, read Acts chapter 19 and Paul's visit to that city. Uh, study it maybe with your, with your small group this week. So Paul had, had come into the, the city of Ephesus, and he found that the city was full of sorcerous practices and idolatry. In fact, we read that as the people began to convert to uh, faith in Jesus Christ, they burned their sorcerous scrolls in the streets, millions of dollars by today's uh, currency worth of of sorcerous scrolls. The people began to to, to, to throw aside their idols to the goddess Artemis, the goddess of uh, the city of Ephesus. So these people had come out of these, these false beliefs, false practices, and now here the Apostle Paul wants to root the church in right doctrine, right belief, right practice. Later in the New Testament, we have two books, first uh, and Second Timothy, where the Apostle Paul is writing to the pastor of the church in Ephesus, Timothy, and encouraging him to watch his life and his doctrine closely, his life and his doctrine, his character as a pastor in that church, as a leader in that church, and his doctrine, how he he taught the people. And the idea was to build up this church, rooting them in the the right kinds of convictions. We read about the, the church in Ephesus again in the book of Revelation, where the apostle John this time addresses seven churches in Asia. Ephesus was one of these churches. And again, he commends them For their, for their faith, for their perseverance, for their relentless expulsion of false apostles, their extermination of false doctrine. And again, he urges them, he admonishes them to not abandon their first love, to not abandon Jesus Christ, but to continue in the faith, to continue in their love for Jesus Christ. And so if we want to do worship right, we need to know Jesus Christ. We need to get to know the God we worship. And so as Paul opens his letter to the Ephesians, he hits us pretty hard in these opening verses with the weight of God's glory, with the power of God's majesty, his grace, his sovereign power. So let's go ahead and turn to Ephesians chapter 1 and read verses 1 through 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we ask now that you would guide us in this study, that you would open our eyes to the meaning of this passage, and that ultimately, Lord, you would lead us to worship, to worship our God. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, there's a lot going on in these introductory verses uh, that Paul has written to the Ephesian church. And um, over the next few weeks, I think we'll fill out a lot of this. I'm not going to touch on every uh, major theme here that we see in these opening verses today, but we'll fill it out as we go. But there are at least a few things that we need to be aware of as we study the book of Ephesians. And the first thing we see here in the, the opening of this book is that our God is a unified triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Okay, working in perfect harmony, in perfect unison to bring about the salvation of the world. Okay, and that's really important here, this idea of God working together. We worship one God, one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. Okay, and so what what Paul is talking about here is the unity of, of this triune God. We see that the Father predestines, the Son saves through the cross, and this Holy Spirit seals us for this day of redemption Three persons working in perfect harmony. One God. And on the basis of that, as we work our way through Ephesians, you get to chapter 2, you get to chapter 3, and what we find is this doctrine of union with Christ. So that's all rooted in the fact that our triune God is a unified God, a a unity. Okay? And then as we continue to work through the book, we come to chapter 4 and we read about unity in the church. Again, all of that is rooted in the unity that exists, the harmony that exists within the Godhead. Another thing we notice in this passage that's important is that our God is a sovereign God who made a covenant with himself before the creation or foundation of the world for redemption. And theologians sometimes refer to this as the covenant of redemption. God made a promise to himself that he would redeem a people for himself, God loves his church. The third thing we see here is that our God has authority over all the powers of this world. And that's something we will see develop through the book of Ephesians. Uh, In the latter part of chapter 1, we read about how Jesus Christ has been elevated to the right hand of the Father, exalted to the right hand of the Father. He has power and dominion over all things, spiritual and physical, in this universe. So, a lot of us are familiar with the very end of, of the book of Ephesians, chapter 6, where it talks about the armor of God, right? Put on the armor of God. Now, the armor of God only makes sense in context to the fact that Jesus Christ is exalted and has authority over all of these spiritual powers. Okay? You have to understand these things. There, there, there's, a, there's a link uh, between God's power power of Jesus Christ in defeating sin and death and the devil and then our ability to tap into that power as Christians right so the armor of god makes sense in context to what Jesus Christ has accomplished for us and the fourth thing i would just remind us of is that our god loves us so much that he sent his son Jesus Christ to die for us that if we have faith in him we will have eternal life it's a theme that runs through this entire book jesus loves his church Jesus loves his church, and all of this to the praise of God's glorious grace, because the whole point, again, is worship, knowing God so that we can worship God. In fact, I think verses 3 through 14 should make us fall down on our face in reverence to God. That's the point. So today, I I do want to stress two significant themes that emerge in this text, We're going to take some time to unpack these two themes. And the first thing that I want to draw your attention to here is the centrality of God. The centrality of God. The centrality of Jesus Christ. See, God is the point of departure. God is the point of departure. God is also the destination. Verse 3 sums it up pretty well. Blessed be God. That's our starting point. Blessed be God or praise be to God. This is critical. Now understand that your point of departure makes all the difference in your destination. This applies to a lot of different areas of life. If you're you're in the medical field, a doctor, a nurse, if you're gonna administer treatment, you, you gotta understand the problem, right? You gotta back up, you gotta know the point of departure, the problem you're trying to solve, right? If you're an engineer troubleshooting a problem, you need to understand the system, how the system works. You need the right point of departure. An accountant balancing the books, right? You need the right numbers plugged in there, otherwise you're going to get the wrong result. Most of us can relate to hiking here in the mountains, right? You want to get to the top of, say, Greys and Tories? Well, you don't start at, at Summit Lake on, on Mount Evans, right? You want to get to the top of Mount Evans, you don't start at Elk Meadow Park. You need the right trailhead, the right point of departure. And it works that way in theology as well, in God's Word. The biblical point of departure is God. So Paul follows this model uh, by beginning with God, right? So notice again the language of verse 3, praise be to God. So God is blessed or praised in verse 3, not because we are worthy to praise Him, but because He is worthy to receive praise. Again, He's blessed because he is worthy of blessing, of receiving blessing, and he is worthy of blessing his creation. Now, a brief survey of Scripture enforces the idea that we are only ever going to fully understand who we are if we have correctly situated ourselves in context to who God is. You go to Genesis 1.1, I mean, that's the beginning of the Bible. In the beginning was God, right? In the beginning, God created. It starts with God. If you look at the promise to, to Abraham that God made to redeem a people, it starts again with God, with his covenant, with his promise. You go to Exodus chapter 20, the Ten Commandments. Right? We don't start with just a list of rules. You've got to back up a little bit, right? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of slavery. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. We situate all of this stuff in context to who God is In Psalm 8, Psalm 8 is is a psalm kind of praising man. It says, What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man, that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels, crowned him with glory and honor, gave him dominion over the birds of the air and the beasts of the field and the, 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 the fish, the things that swim in the depths of the sea. But what's the starting point? O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. We've got to have the right point of departure. So verses 3 through 14 of Ephesians are actually known as a eulogy, a blessing. This is rooted in in a Greek word from which we get this word, uh, eulogy. And eulogies in Scripture follow the Hebraic formula of the berakah, or the liturgical benediction that we see throughout the Psalms. The starting point, again, is God. So if we fail to accept this right starting point, this this right point of departure, we end up with a watered-down, human-centric theology and an attenuated worship. Now, the second thing we need to notice in Ephesians chapter 1 is the sovereignty of God, the sovereignty of God. Now, sovereignty is a word we talk about quite a bit because it sounds important, we don't always have a good sense of what it means. I know I've thrown this word out at times without really thinking about what it means, the sovereignty of God. And I was thinking about this this week in context to Ephesians 1. How do we understand or define sovereignty in light of this text? And this is what I came to. By sovereignty, we mean that God's plan is fully imagined, fully instigated, and fulfilled by God himself, with no other influence upon him than that of his own attributes, that of his own character. I'll say that again. When we talk about sovereignty, we mean that God's plan is fully imagined, instigated, and fulfilled by God himself with no other influence on him, but that of his own character, his own attributes. God is in control. God does as he pleases. Now, there are three key words that Paul uses in this eulogy, in verses 3 through 14. So if you've got your Bible, take a look at verses 4 and 5, and then verses 11 as well. And it's the word chose, God chose, God predestined, it's the second word, and then God willed is the third term we see here. And this schema occurs twice in the text. So first in in, in verses 4 and 5, where we see and we read, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Chose, predestined, willed. We see it again in verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance. That's the idea again of being chosen, being brought in. Obtained an inheritance having been predestined. There's that word again, according to the purpose of him who works out all things, according to the counsel of his will. Now, notice that Paul's initial audience here is us. And who is us? Us is Paul and the Jewish people. People that had been set apart by God for God. So Paul here is referencing this Jewish history back to the Old Testament where God had made a covenant with Abraham that he would bless Abraham, that he would give him descendants as numerous as the stars in the heavens, and that he would bless the nations through Abraham. So if you go to Deuteronomy chapter 7, for example, Moses writes, The Lord your God has chosen you. He's talking to the Jewish people. He has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. He goes on to say, the Lord did not set his affection on you or choose you because you are more numerous than other peoples, for you are the fewest of all peoples, but it was because the Lord loved you and kept an oath he swore to your ancestors. So the us here, the we that Paul is referring to is he and his people, the Jewish people. But notice then, in verse 13, Paul turns to you, you also. You also were included in Christ when you heard the message of your salvation. See, God's sovereign plan extended beyond just the nation of Israel. God's purpose was that through Abraham's offspring, Jesus Christ, the nations would be blessed. Gentile branches would be grafted into that that stump, that root that was uh, the Jewish people. Now, it's not strange to imagine a parent deciding to take his own children to an amusement park and treat them to a day of fun and food and ice cream and all that kind of stuff. That's not hard to imagine. But imagine that same parent also rounding up all the other neighborhood kids and including them in that day of fun and activity. And this is exactly what God has done. Though God was under no compulsion to save anyone He chose to extend his grace to the nations according to his good pleasure. Now, again, we like to talk a lot about God's sovereignty in the church, but we don't always like to think too hard about what it means, because when we think about God's sovereignty, this is an affront to our pride. God's sovereignty is an affront. It's offensive to our pride as human beings. You see, the the idea here is if God is in control, in control of our salvation, in control of our ultimate destiny, what that means is that we are not in control. We're not in control. If God's sovereign plan extends over all of time and space, then we are not masters of our own lives. And those two truths are a bit uncomfortable. God is sovereign and yet man is free. God is sovereign, yet man is is responsible. How, How does that work out? And these two truths converge on this uncomfortable reality I sometimes like to refer to as the abominable conjunction, this awkward convergence of these two realities. Now, this messes with us a little bit, but I think we need to deal with this because this is the language of Ephesians 1. God is sovereign, yet man is significant. Now, there are three thoughts I have on this that that may help us understand this concept a little better. The first thing we need to to note is that God's sovereignty and man's responsibility are not a contradiction. They're not a logical contradiction. I would suggest that this is more of a, a paradox. Not a contradiction, but a paradox. And you've heard me talk about this a little bit before, but paradoxes are something we just have to live with. It's just a part of of the reality in which we live. And there are all kinds of paradoxes, mathematically, uh, in in logic and in philosophy and in science. These things are just something we have to deal with. The The time traveler paradox, for example. If you go back in time and kill your ancestor, you'll never be born. But if you're never born, you can't go back in time to kill your ancestor. How does that work out? There are mathematical paradoxes related to the nature of infinity, for example, Adding or subtracting from infinity. Paradoxes in in physics surrounding the speed of light and black holes and all of this stuff. In philosophy, the skeptical paradox. I can know things about the world around me, I can have mind independent uh, knowledge of external world realities, and yet I can't ever prove that I'm not the victim of some sort of massive deception. How does that work out? The liar paradox. It's true that everything I say is a lie. The list goes on and on. And some of these are are sophisms that we don't really need to worry too much about. But some of these are real problems. And my point is simply this, that paradoxes are simply just a, a reality we have to live with. They usually have an answer rooted in some missing information or that's tied in some way to human limitations intellectually. But the point is that it should not be that strange to us that God is sovereign and yet man is responsible The second thing I would note on this, we need to remember that the starting point is God, not man. We're not always as free as we think we are. We are limited intellectually, physically. There are a lot of limitations on us. We might think we're in control of our life and then we're hit with an accident, cancer, you name it. We're not as in control as we like to think we are. And the third thing to remember here, too, is that God's sovereignty is expressed through a relationship of love with his people. That's what we see here in Ephesians 1, a relationship of love with his people. See, the alternative to God's sovereign power would be a blind, unthinking universe. You want to take God out of the picture? You want to deny the sovereignty of God? You're left with a blind, unthinking universe that cares nothing for you and gives nothing to you. These are the options. Either we're subject to a God who predestined us in love to be adopted as sons to the praise of his glory, or we are subject to natural processes, like I said, that care nothing for us. So, under the umbrella of God's sovereign power, however this works out, human beings are still given agency to act, to be held accountable for their actions. So, understand that the language of Scripture acknowledges that though God is sovereign, man is significant. Something Francis Schaeffer used to say God is sovereign, man is significant. God is sovereign, man is still responsible. And the beauty of the whole thing is that human beings are lovingly invited into a relationship of obedience and worship of God through adoption into sonship. God is central, God is sovereign. And if we're not rooted in who God is, we're not going to get anything else right. See, the Christian life, Christian life and practice are rooted in this foundation. And understand as well that when it comes to God, the abstract, the theoretical, all of this stuff is never very far removed from the practical. Never very far removed from the daily ordinary stuff. Understand that this is not just a bunch of nonsense, theological gobbledygook, okay? Okay? Let me tell you why this stuff matters. Let me tell you why the centrality of Jesus Christ and the sovereignty of God matters. When I was on the mission field, um, in my last church in Lyon, France, there was a young woman. we'll, We'll call her Isabel. And Isabel was an atheist, but more than just an atheist. Isabel hated God, okay? She hated everything about God. Everything about the church. Everything about Scripture. And one day when Isabel was out on the street, on her way home from work or wherever, she met a group of Christians who were handing out Bibles on the street. And she took one of these Bibles. Now, when she realized what it was, she took it home and burned it, okay? Um, She didn't just throw it on a shelf somewhere, forget about it, or hand it to a friend. She lit it on fire and burned it to ash because she hated everything it represented. Now, fast forward a couple of months. Isabel was on her way to to work, uh, riding the Metro, the underground train, and on the seat she sat in, she found a little scrap of of paper that had been torn out of a, a Christian calendar. It had some Bible verses on it. She ripped it up, threw it away. Fast forward a couple more weeks. She's on the Metro again. Now, understand, I rode the Metro for years, I never saw any signs of Christianity anywhere. But again, she finds another piece of paper with a Bible verse written on it in her seat. Now, fast forward a couple more days, okay? Her consternation, her her bewilderment over these encounters with the Bible led her to finally go online and look up a Protestant church, find out if there was something in her neighborhood. She found our church. She showed up that Sunday. She heard the gospel. She received Jesus Christ as her Savior. If you've ever wondered why we need to care about all this talk of sovereignty, of God electing us predestining us, if we talk about holiness, if we talk about all this this stuff, Ephesians 1 stuff, it's, it's for this reason. Because before the creation of the world, the triune and thrice holy God predestined this young woman to be adopted as his precious daughter. That's the kind of God we worship. Our God is in the heavens, he does as he pleases, Psalm 115.3. He doesn't do as man pleases. Now, he certainly invites us into a relationship of prayer, but God ultimately does as he pleases. And these theological truths, this is what sustained me on the mission field. See, it's impossible to get up week after week and preach to a practically empty church, church when you're planting a church, if you are not convinced of the sovereignty of God. It's impossible. It's impossible to walk faithfully day after day in obedience, and this applies to all of us, in obedience to Jesus Christ unless you have come face to face with the sovereignty of God. When you know who God is, there is no place left for pride. See, why do we keep showing up? Why do we evangelize? Why do we pray and ask God to transform lives and transform situations and judge wickedness according to his wisdom? Why do we believe that God can sustain his church? Well, it's because our God is in the heavens. He does as he pleases, right? It's about God, not about us. See, we persevere in the Christian life to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding because it's about God. See, we're never going to get rid of sin and get rid of pride and ignorance and self-worship and and cast those things out of our lives by trying harder to get rid of sin and get rid of ignorance and pride and self-worship. Trying harder is not going to get those things out of your life. We will only see these things peel away from us when we start to really see who God is. So if we want to overcome this theological minimalism in our lives, if we really want to delve into the riches of knowing God, we need to receive the foundation that he laid in eternity. We need to receive Jesus Christ in faith, acknowledging that our semblance of control is a mere illusion. Jesus said it well, I think in John 17:3, this is eternal life, that they would know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom He has sent.